Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, April is Organ Donor Awareness Month, and you know, the gift of life, I know firsthand how important it is. I know many of the people who are listening either have a transplant or waiting for a transplant. And today I'm, I'm excited because we're going to be talking to Lisa Williams. She's the Director of Community Services for the Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland. And, you know, I, I found this organization because I was, you know, perusing Facebook and they were doing an interesting program about outreach and you know, the importance of uh, contacting the donor family if you receive one of the gifts of life. And I, I just wanted to learn more about that. So I'm really excited because Lita's is going to talk about that. So welcome to the program, Lita. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be able to speak with you today. So tell us a little bit about what the Organ Procurement Agency does, because some people may not know, and then how you connect donors with families. So a lot of people, I think, have often never heard of an organ procurement organization and are not really familiar with what we do. When people sign up at the uh, DMV or the MVA to become an organ donor, there's not necessarily a lot of knowledge of exactly how that process will happen when they're at the time that they pass away for their organs to be uh, donated to someone who is waiting and in need. And oftentimes even recipients who've been transplanted are very familiar with their transplant centers but not necessarily familiar with how the OPO coordinates that donation in their state. So there are 58 OPOs across the country uh, in designated regions that have uh, really been set by CMS and the government. And those uh, 58 regions have a nonprofit organization in each region that facilitates donation. And we are the folks who anytime someone passes away or meets certain criteria at a hospital, that the hospital calls the OPO in that state. And our OPO does uh, the evaluation and determines, is this person a potential candidate for organ donation? May they possibly help someone else at the time of their death uh, if they were designated or if their family members feel they would want to help others through donation. If we determine that that's a possibility, uh, then our nurses and social workers go out and meet with the hospital staff and with the family and talk through that decision about donation and then also help to understand what that process looks like of a, of a donation and transplant. Um, and we really then coordinate the process, run the list, and reach out to the transplant centers once those lists have been run to let surgeons know that there is a donor who is a potential ca- a candidate and match for one of their patients. Um, those surgeons then make their decisions about accepting the organs, and the OPO coordinates the OR. So they coordinate uh, for the surgeons to come in for that surgery to happen where the organs are recovered, and then those uh, are taken back and, of course, transplanted to give this incredible gift that this donor and their family have decided to give. Uh, so the OPO really is sort of the behind the scenes of that process. And then the other piece that we do that really comes into what we wanted to talk about today with 
connecting donor families and recipients is that the OPO facilitates uh, some form of grief and bereavement aftercare. And it looks a little bit different depending on where you are in the country. Um, we're lucky here in Maryland that we get to do grief counseling with our families and a lot of really intensive ongoing support. Um, some places have larger programs than others, but in all states, uh, there is follow-up that happens with that donor family to let them know what was the outcome of their loved one's donation, a little bit of information about um, how many people's lives were saved, and uh, just generally maybe uh, information about them, not anything specific. Uh, but, you know, let's um, um, just, I was listening to what you said about, you know, all the work that's done in the hospital about, you know, communicating with a family on the importance of organ donation. And I myself, you know, I've lived with this illness since 1968, and I've had three deceased donor kidneys. And, I mean, it's it's somewhat humbling because my first two kidneys that I received, and it was in 1979 and 83, and they were from two- to three-year-old children. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I'm, I have a picture in my mind of, you know, the staff going to the hospital to talk to a f- parent. And I just like, oh my goodness, that must be one of the most difficult jobs because you're, you've lost of somebody, you know, that somebody loves, but at the same time, you're going to save so many people's lives as a result of that person passing away. And it was very strange for me because the first time I got the kidney um, when I was 13, it, it never worked. And, you know, back then in 1979, they didn't know what they were doing. But in 1983, when I got my second transplant, you know, I learned more about one of the one of the donors was drowned. And, you know, it just became so real. Like, I started to visualize this child. And so, um, so my third transplant, because those first two didn't work, was from a man who was in an accident in the middle of uh, somewhere in Denver, Colorado, and he was a six-antigen match kidney for me. And so oh, that wow. kidney flew in. I call the kidney Denver. And <laughs> um, and it, it lasted 20 years, and I tried to find the family, but I could not. And uh, it, it's interesting because talk a little bit about that process of that, you know, you've had the transplant. Um, what can a person do if they want to reach out to, you know, the, the family that donated the organs. And, and what are some of the stories that have, have come out of that situation? Oh, sure. So I think this is one of the things where there's a lot of, there's still a lot of misconceptions about this, how this process works. And there's also still a lot of variability around the country. So one of the things that is, I always give as a disclaimer when talking about this, is that you may find that there are some, uh, there are just some unique processes in place depending on your region and the country. But in general, the way that the process works is after receiving a transplant, uh, you can write a letter at any time. And I think this is one of the misconceptions that's still out there. Many years ago, and in fact, probably uh, certainly when you were getting your transplants, especially your first two transplants, there was total anonymity or a lot of restrictions around if you could write, when you could write, what you could say. And some of those old ways have still carried over. And there's still some misconceptions where people think, oh, I have to wait at least a year or I have to wait a certain amount of time before I can write a letter. Most places in the country, that is no longer true. There is no waiting period. You can write as soon as you're ready. And we have recipients who write... um, 
you know, when they're, when they're just, have just gotten discharged from the hospital, um, we have recipients that write 20 years later and they're just finally ready to write a letter. So there is a lot of variability, but it really comes down to the individual, what is going to work for them. And as an OPO and as transplant programs, We've really moved in a direction of saying it's not our decision. It's, it's the recipient's decision and the donor family's decision whether they're ready to write a letter or receive a letter. Now, can the donor can can the donor family write a letter to try to contact the recipient as well? Absolutely. So either the donor family or the recipient can initiate this process. It does not have to be the recipient. Uh, many times in our experience here, the donor family writes first. Uh, oh, wow. We have donor families who actually uh, write letters sometimes at the hospital and ask for it to get transported with the organ and with the surgeon so it can be given to the recipient as soon as they wake up. And oh, wow. <laughs> as long as the transplant center is okay with that and as long as the recipient, of course, um, gives permission and says, yes, I would like to receive this letter, that can happen um, that early. And again, there are still some places in the country that have a, a few restrictions, but for the most part, um, this is the case. And what we find in, what I find in talking to recipients, because I speak about this um, at recipient support groups and in other settings at conferences for recipients, one of the things I hear from people is a hesitation to write because they're worried that they are going to um, kind of upset the family or they're going to remind them of something that is really difficult that they've gone through. And so sometimes people say, well, I've been waiting because I want to give them enough time. I don't want to remind them of this or make them sad. (laughs) Uh, And what I tell recipients time and again is this family will there's not a day that goes by where they have forgotten the loss that has happened to right. them. This exactly. has been a, a devastating loss. And when you write a letter, it's not a reminder of of the loss. It's a reminder of the one good thing that came out of that loss. Because um, right. for many families, we know they identify that donation was the one thing that gave some sense of meaning to this. Um, so sometimes we hear those apprehensions from people, and I think what's really incredible is when recipients and donor families do connect, and recipients really can start to see how much healing they have brought to their donor family in their grief mm-hmm. by just knowing that their loved one was able to help someone. So, Litsa, tell us about one story that's really memorable about, you know, organ donation. Absolutely. Uh, there's, I think there's a lot of stories that come out of this incredible correspondence process when donor families and recipients choose to communicate with one another. But one that comes to mind uh, for that's happened within our service area here actually happened while some of those restrictions that I had mentioned that used to be in place about waiting periods and some restrictions on what you could share were still in place. And we had a um, donor dad, his son had had died and was an organ donor, who ended up corresponding with his son's heart recipient. And uh, at that time, there was a little more red tape on the process. And I will say both of them were a little bit frustrated that they weren't able to meet as quickly as they had hoped. Um, But once they did meet, they hit it off 
just immediately in this way that was really, I think, overwhelming to them and inspiring to other people. And ultimately, uh, this donor dad was getting remarried. And in planning his wedding, he actually asked his son's heart recipient to be the best man in his wedding. That's such a wonderful story. Beautiful photos. Um, that came out of that wedding and the, the two of them together. And they've spent over the years many holidays together and other things. Um, and what they've also done is they've really used their story as an example to try to change and successfully change some of those policies that used to exist in the OPO and transplant community, saying, this has been so healing for both of us to meet one another, to build this friendship and this relationship. And we only wish it could have happened sooner. And really encouraging everyone in the transplant community to take a step back and say, you know, perhaps we should be giving these decisions to donor families and recipients to decide what the right pace is. Because for some people, they're not going to be ready right away. But this was an example of a truly beautiful and inspiring story where both the donor family and the recipient were so eager to meet right away. And uh, unfortunately, at the time, it didn't happen as quickly as as they would have liked. But it was just a story. They're two of the greatest guys. We um, They come in our office and volunteer and um, just always, I think, inspire all of our staff about the incredible work that we do. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, whenever you talk about the heart transplant, people get really emotional because the word heart, you know, comes with so many, you know, love and trust. And, you know, when you talk yeah. about kidneys, people don't have the same <laughs> emotion. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's a little frustrating at times because the key, the kidneys do so much and the livers, but, you know, the hearts get all the attention. Um, they do. But, but, you know, one thing that's, you say communicate with the donor family, and, and I know this from running an organization, there, there has to be a situation where you can't sometimes reach people because, you're only as good as your database, <laughs> and um, and does if you wait too long, you may not be able to reach the donor family. So um, I'm just putting it out there because that is a reality, correct? Oh yeah, that's such an important point. I think sometimes we do talk to recipients who make who waited for various reasons, and um, then when they do write, maybe it has been you know, five years, eight years, ten years, and the contact information that we have had for that donor family just may no longer be active. People's phone numbers change, people's addresses change, and I will tell you, sometimes we feel like we are like private investigators. We go on a hunt to try to to, to find donor families when we receive a letter from their recipient, and we will do everything we can to take to social media and to use any um, possible avenue we have, but sometimes just no matter what we do, we can't find that donor family. And so I always do encourage um, donor families and recipients that if they do intend to write and they've been putting it off for whatever reason, do be aware that the longer you wait, the greater the likelihood that we're not going to be able to locate that other party. Well, and then at the end of the day, I believe that Everybody who receives an organ from a family should write a letter 
regardless if they ever want to meet them or be in contact with them. It's just the right thing to do. It's like, you know, when you give somebody a gift and you get that thank you in the mail, it makes you feel nice. Um, and then you yeah. get, then you give a gift and nobody even acknowledges you, 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 you gave it. It, it kind of turns you off. So, um, <laughs> it's, it's for everybody, you know, listening who gets a deceased donor from a family, it should be just a given. It should be that you're going to write a letter. And then maybe at a later date, you can meet with them if you choose to. Absolutely. And I think it's important for people to know that it is absolutely your personal decision whether you want to share any um, identifying information or meet that person or not. So you can write a completely confidential letter where you really don't necessarily want to go on to have, um, you know, a really kind of the kind of relationship I described with Bob and Bernie, right. where they're very close with one another and they, you know, spend holidays together. Maybe you just want to say thank you this one time, mm-hmm. and that's absolutely okay. And you can do that in a very anonymous way, um, and it can really be something um, on any end of the spectrum where you can write in that letter that you would love to meet the family or you can just say you just wanted to express your gratitude and um, anywhere in between. So that's really a very personal decision. Um, but I do agree with you. I I always hope that anyone who receives a transplant will write that letter because so many donor families so desperately do want to just hear something, to know that those that recipient is doing okay. And they made a difference. I think payment should be tied to writing a letter. <laughs> That's going to be my new proposal. If, um, the patient has to pay a copay if they don't write a letter. We could come up with some well, kind of strategy you know, like that. The thing that's funny is that, <laughs> and I tell donor families this all the time when they haven't heard from a recipient, is that never have I met a recipient who is not deeply, deeply and eternally grateful for the gift that they have been given. And the decision to not write a letter, in my experience, is never because they are not grateful. Mm -hmm. It's typically because they're struggling to find the words. They don't know what to say. they're struggling with the idea that their donor family will not think they were worthy of the gift or Mm -hmm. will be disappointed or, you know, usually it's these anxieties that get in our way. And I think my message to people beyond just saying, you know, you should write, because I think everybody in, in some way knows and wants to express their gratitude, but is don't let those fears get in the way because it truly does not matter what you say. It is about the fact that you took the time to just reach out, even if it's just a little card with a short note and just say, you know, thank you. I, mm-hmm. I am just so deeply grateful for this gift. And I, I think of you and I think of your loved one. And it doesn't have to be anything grander than that. It's often just that act of writing that means the world to a donor family. It's not about, it's not about the words or saying something perfect. The Living Legacy Foundation of Maryland did something interesting by helping this process. And tell us a little bit about that before we wrap up. So one of the things that we've done, and this is often because we do know that recipients sometimes are having some anxieties about writing this letter or just are, are struggling a little bit, and they're all sitting at home worrying about it in isolation, is we have made efforts to sort of give forums to bring recipients together where we can talk about 
of writing the process of writing to your donor family. We can talk about some of these anxieties and where people can actually write then work on their letter if they would like to do that. Um, and so we've done this in different forums and in different ways with small groups and larger groups. Um, but there is a really great sense of community that happens, I think, when recipients get mm-hmm. together and start talking about this this topic because they can share what they want to write in their letter or what they have written in their letter and they can bounce things off of each other and they can bounce things off of us as an OPO because they know that we are connected to donor families and we do get to share sometimes in that experience of knowing what a donor family felt when they received a letter. Um, So I think that that is something for OPOs and transplant centers or if you're in a recipient support group, um, a trio member, something like that, that can be a great way to just bring people together to do this really important thing and it can be a little motivator. Sometimes we get people who say, I've been meaning to do this for so long (laughs) and this is just what finally prompted me to sit down and do it. Um, So it can be a really, really great activity for recipients and also for donor families um, to to do this kind of as a group. And I'm sure it's very emotional and very cathartic because I know when you sit down and you put pen to paper, your emotions start to flow. So I, um, I, I can imagine that it's, it's, it's really healthy and moving at the same time. So you gave me a great idea, Litza. Maybe that's something I'll put together for April. And, uh, I thank you for your information. I think it's, um, and your commitment to helping people, uh, families and people who are waiting for a transplant. And I look forward to seeing you on Facebook and I look forward to, um, talking to you in the future. Thank you so much for the information. Thank you so much for having me and for bringing up this topic. It's so important. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.